no system is free of maintenance. It doesn't matter whether that's an economic system, a biological system, or your car, right? Yeah. Like they all require some sort of maintenance and management to keep it functioning. And so time management and what you have for human capital, what do you, what yeah. you have available for that is critical to determine what your ultimate design is going to look like. In this episode of Voices from the Field, INCAT's agroforestry specialist, Catherine Favor, sits down with Christopher Marciello of Ecology Artisans to talk about urban agroforestry in dryland environments. Christopher is a co-owner and lead designer for Ecology Artisans, which is a regenerative landscape and design firm in San Diego County, California. It designs, installs, and manages landscapes for residential homes, homesteads, small farms, and orchards. Their designs incorporate water harvesting, soil development, habitat development, regionally appropriate plant species, and appropriately scaled food production. In this conversation, Catherine and Christopher discuss how these design principles can be applied to urban agroforestry systems, particularly urban agroforestry systems in dry land and drought-ridden areas. Let's listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Catherine Favor. I'm a sustainable agriculture specialist with the National Center for Appropriate Technology here in California. And today I am sitting down with Christopher Marciello of Ecology Artisans to talk about one of my favorite topics, urban agroforestry. Hi, Chris. Hello, Catherine. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So Christopher is the co-owner and a designer for Ecology Artisans, as well as an International Society of Arboriculture Certified Arborist. And he has been a student of permaculture and regenerative design since 1995. After completing a permaculture design course with the San Diego Sustainable Living Institute in 2013, Christopher began working professionally as a permaculture designer. And as a permaculture designer, Christopher has installed and managed multiple food forests, as well as regenerative water harvesting landscapes, residential gray water systems, and cistern-based rainwater harvesting systems. Christopher has been actively designing and managing agroforestry systems, utilizing alley cropping, hedgerows, windbreaks, timber belts, forest farming, and cover cropping with animal grazing to develop soil fertility. And I can personally attest, Chris, that you are the urban agroforestry expert. We've worked together on uh, urban agroforestry systems in the past, and I've just learned so much from you. So I am just so happy to have you here. And uh, yeah, excited to dive into this topic with you. So you've been permaculture design certified since 1995, but how did you get started working specifically in the world of agroforestry? So... In doing a permaculture design course, I was introduced to this book called um, Tree Crops, uh, Permanent mm -hmm. Agriculture, and that was written by uh, J. Russell Smith. And that was the first time I had actually thought about trees in that same kind of agricultural context. You know, like I'm from New England, so I'm very familiar with apple orchards and things of that nature, but actually yeah. utilizing trees to manage environmental factors was something that I hadn't really thought about in a large scale production context. So that was really where, where I was introduced to that idea. And then Mark Shepard put out a book called Restoration Agriculture. Yes. Oh my gosh. That was my spark book too. Yeah. 
And so that was the first time I had read and seen agroforestry in practice. And then from there, I had read Ben Folk's book, The Resilient Farm and Homestead, or it may have been reversed, but you know, Ben is a, a really incredible permaculture designer. And seeing him take the concept of that homestead scale of farming, whereas Mark was a, like large scale production yeah. and then seeing how Ben scaled that down in a much smaller context to homesteads and residential design. Like those were keys for me that were big influences on how I started to think about landscape design and land management. Yeah. And, and because you, you work a lot in residential areas. So you've done a lot of design where you're incorporating trees in urban areas, on urban farms, and just in backyards to address the problems that those environments are experiencing. So how have you seen how trees can work to address specifically urban challenges? Yeah. So the way that ecology artisans philosophically approaches landscape design and land management issues is from an ecological perspective. And so there's like some key criteria that all of our designs are really focused on. And, you know, that's water harvesting, Mm -hmm. soil development, habitat development, food production, and then implementing native and regionally appropriate plant species. So depending on what type of client we're working with, because it's fairly broad, we apply agroforestry principles to the needs of people in an urban environment. So we take those agroforestry practices, but then scaling that down and applying it to some of the needs of the clients. So I want to take a step back just to paint the picture of these designs that you're talking about. I, I think a lot of people are familiar with kind of the basic agroforestry practices that are, you know, silvopasture, windbreaks, riparian forest buffers, but in urban settings, there are kind of additional applications and there are additional ways that you can arrange trees. And so typically when you're working with clients, like I'm sure it depends, but kind of what is the range of different designs that you typically implement in, in urban areas? Yeah, you know, there's no one size fits all. And I think one of the things that we have always tried to impart to our clients is that these are dynamic living systems and applying agroforestry principles really depends. So like oftentimes our clients want privacy. And so what I will do is design my edges to be like windrows and and hedgerows so that I'm creating a multi-tiered sort of density that will give them that that living fence that they're looking for, as well as applying the environmental mitigation factors that you want from windrows and hedgerows, as well as from like a a water harvesting perspective. A lot of urban design has poor soil quality or really compacted soils. So a lot of my design will be set up to mitigate runoff issues. So thinking about getting as many roots as I can possibly into the soil. So that way we increase that porous space. We allow for greater percolation and infiltration. And in doing that, setting up 
the landscape so that it actually can receive the water. Yeah. And I love what you brought up about meeting multiple goals with your design, with how you arrange these trees. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of times they're approaching it specifically from, you know, they want some privacy, they want it to be aesthetically appealing, but a part of what we do in working with clients is educating them on these larger issues, educating them about how you can use trees and dense hedgerows to, to mitigate some of the noise issues or the capture of particulate matter. Every single aspect of it needs to take into account all of these various factors, right? Like what is the client's needs? What is the general microclimate for your area? And so one of the projects that we've done that I think is a really interesting example of how you can implement urban agroforestry. Dr. Bronner's corporate headquarters had a, a really water intensive landscape and some hillsides that were not being utilized. They wanted to create a space where they could have areas for their employees to go and be outside during their breaks and during their lunches, but there wasn't a whole lot of area for them. It's also in a really hot industrial area. So what we did is we we took that hillside and we created these large terraces. We, we structured the landscape so that we had roughly about 150 foot long by 12 foot terraces. And then we planted it all up with a variety of fruit trees and overstory trees and made areas where their people could come and sit under trees during lunch. And so you know, we used sort of like a, a standard orchard spacing, a little bit tighter for, for that area. You know, our trees were spaced out about 15 foot on center and slightly offset rows to okay. create a little bit more space rather than having, you know, everything in a line. That then created areas where you could fit more people into a smaller area. You could stack trees in a tighter density, but because of the slight offset with proper pruning techniques, it gave you the ability to create this overstoried canopy effect in what was formerly just a, an, an eroding hillside that had a lot of weeds. So there are multiple different aspects to building these systems, and you have to be able to think about how are we capturing water? What are our sun patterns? What are our wind patterns? How ultimately does the client wish to use that space? And then looking at the principles of agroforestry and using them to create that design and really being creative, not being ideological in your approach to how to apply agroforestry because it really yeah. is like it's it's creative and the more creative that you can be in reaching your clients goals taking into all the environmental factors like those are that's key i think to creating successful systems regardless of the scale it's so true like urban agroforestry can look so many different ways I like yep. that you talk about maintaining creativity and, and just adapting it always to the goals and the resources and the landscape. Yeah, like one of the projects that we're doing right now, it's a small, maybe a quarter acre 
residential site. They have a lot of runoff issues that are happening right now. So we're utilizing very small on-contour permaculture style swales so that we're interrupting sheet flow, holding water higher up in the landscape, giving it an opportunity to infiltrate and percolate, and then planting out their orchard in a contoured pattern to maximize the capture of that sheet flow Mm-hmm. to create more usable space within a smaller area, getting them to utilize smaller trees. So rather than going with semis or standards, encouraging them to go with dwarfing trees. And then that gives them that much more space, gives them the access to, to harvest easier without the need for more mechanical assistance. Like a lot of times with dwarfs, you can harvest just with a hand picker. So taking those exact same principles, shaping it to fit your scale, and then utilizing it to do all of the important soil development, water harvesting, green mulching, as well as taking into account the aesthetics of it. Because I do think the aesthetic is really important. Even in a production system, you know, one of the things, and, and I know you and I have talked about this a lot when we were working together at Coastal Roots is how the aesthetics really draw people in, make them inclusive, and then you can really educate how a production system, whether it's residential or at scale for production, how those elements of flowering plants and edge plantings and trees can all be used to create something that is aesthetically pleasing, as well as habitat developing, and then mitigating the environmental issues that I think we are all coming to regenerative agriculture for. Well, that's such a good point about the aesthetic value of of these urban agroforestry landscapes, because I think, you know, one of the big goals of implementing urban agroforestry is that in a lot of urban settings, people don't get access to nature it's you know a lot of it's a concrete jungle and having that access to nature really has been shown to improve mental health and I think that that is kind of an undervalued benefit to urban agroforestry I agree 100 um you know there's a lot of social science that demonstrates the benefits of trees in urban settings and how that affects people's mental states from lower levels of depression to increased feelings of happiness, how trees bioremediate environmental factors. So lowering of kind of like these heat pockets that you have in the city, like a lot of evidence currently about how that affects people. So like, as an example, there's a particular plant that I like to use it's called uh, African senna. There's a specific small butterfly. It's called a uh, cloudless sulfur that specifically uses that senna as a food source. And I've had clients come back and, you know, like just seeing all these butterflies now that were never in their environment before. I mean, there's always birds, but like to see these increased populations of, of wildlife in their backyard just that sense of gratification in that and the happiness that they feel in interacting with their landscape. There are these definite increases in coming into contact with the natural world, right? And 
that's one of the benefits I also think that you really get. When you're working in an alley cropping system, say, like we had at Costa Roots, the number of bird species that we saw coming into there, you know, we saw bobcats coming into downtown Encinitas into a farm that is, you know, less than a mile from a major urban area with restaurants and housing and freeways. There were that endangered species too, that California gnat snatcher, which was found in our alley cropping system. Yeah. So like that increase really gives people an opportunity to interact and see what land management actually can be as opposed to what we have been doing in our urban areas. It is pretty amazing. And it doesn't have to be a huge system, like just little pockets of agroforestry systems can provide so much habitat for, for biodiversity. It's really incredible. Those all serve as wildlife corridors. And the more we create those spaces, those interfacing habitat zones, we create that space for that wildlife to kind of expand its its regionality a little bit. And I think yeah. that that's really exciting. That's, a, that's a, an exciting aspect of designing within an urban context. You know, there's a gratification yeah. there. And I do think a lot of people then find themselves thinking about their urban space in a more holistic context, right? Like yeah. their, their space is not only habitat for them, but it's a part of that natural network. Well, I, that, these are just such good points that any urban agroforestry system is going to meet multiple goals. You're going to support biodiversity. You're going to provide aesthetic value to humans. You're going to provide privacy and buffers to noise and other particulate matter. You're going to help manage storm water runoff. There are just so many benefits to these systems. They meet so many goals. And then production goals too, like you can actually produce a lot of food in a small space in an urban environment with agroforestry, right? Because you're maximizing your vertical space. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like we had mentioned thinking about creating a multi-tiered production area. So with a backyard orchard, you can think about your fruit bearing trees as your overstory and utilizing that overstory to create microclimates within that that little orchard for additional production that you can fit into these smaller areas. So like I have a client, she's got, it's probably like an eighth of an acre. She has roughly about 10 fruit trees in her backyard, somewhat mature. You know, we've been doing some crown training and pruning for production. And we've just now gotten our canopy where we're starting to install like some blueberries. So now they're really excited because not only are they getting fruit trees, but they're able to start putting some berries into the ground and starting to build some, some raspberry trellises for them, you know, and, and really being able to then utilize those very small spaces. You know, we're talking 300, 450 roughly square feet where they're doing multiple seasons of home production, right? Well, and that's so important for food security in urban areas, because so often we in, in urban areas, I live in an urban area, it's really hard to get fresh food. 
But if we are able to produce food in our urban areas, I mean, that's just good for everybody. It, it allows people to get nutritious food, fresh food, locally grown food, organic food, a culturally appropriate food, right? Like, yes, absolutely. And it, it's interesting, like, especially in the past two years, we really saw a lot of clients coming to us out of that idea of food insecurity. Now, obviously, like a fruit tree isn't feeding a family, but it is a part of their overall caloric intake. And so being able to grow some apples or grow some peaches or, you know, some lemons in their backyard, reducing the need to go out, especially like at the beginning of the pandemic, where you would go into a grocery store and, you know, it kind of felt a little apocalyptic. And I actually think that, you know, I'm not saying that the pandemic was a good thing. Clearly, that is not what I'm trying to say. But I do think that people being introduced to small scale production, more resiliency, utilizing their personal space more efficiently is a good thing. Yeah. Because, okay, so one of the, the larger issues with fruit production is the carbon footprint, right? Like, We're getting mangoes here in Southern California because they're being shipped up from Mexico and Central America. Yeah. That fruit has a tremendous carbon footprint. So educating people about what they can grow and what seasonality actually looks like is huge. And so I think that that's a great educational component that urban agroforestry can offer people is not only is it teaching people about how our space has its own ecology, how it's a habitat, but what our food system actually is and what it looks like and what it takes to maintain a healthy tree, right? If you think about now, you know what it's like to prune a tree, what it's like to raise that tree, water it, fertilize it so that it becomes healthy enough to produce a quality fruit. I think that's a good thing. Yeah, that's so true. And then, you know, kind of like what you said, like about food just traveling so far to reach us, especially when we're in urban areas. Like another thing I think about is food loses nutritional content every day after sure. it's been harvested, right? And so if if a mango is coming all the way from South America, it's going to be way less nutritious than if you were growing a, an apple in, in your backyard or in a public park or something. Absolutely. And like something that that just made me think of is also like expanding the palette of what Mm. we recognize as available fruits. Um, So one of my one of my favorite agroforestry trees is the mulberry. I think that that is hands down the most incredible fruit. And because of the, the short amount of time that that fruit is viable, it's poor packaging and storage capacity you don't really see mulberries even at a, at a farmer's market but when i introduce clients to that most people are like wow i've never had this before it's really incredible it's a drought tolerant tree it produces an incredible overstory canopy if you actually are utilizing animals in a system and even in a in a residential system the foliage has its own nutrient content. You can feed it to goats. You can feed it to chickens. It's deciduous. 
So it provides a lot of organic material that will create its own mulching system for the tree, which then over time begin, helps to build the soil organic matter. So it's like this really incredible multifaceted agroforestry tree that works fantastic in a drylands environment and produces this incredible fruit that most people have not had an opportunity to experience. Well, and you bring up a good point about utilizing place appropriate species. I know that that's part, that's a key component to your design philosophy is just utilizing native or naturalized plants as much as you can. And I want to talk about that, like how, how you come up with planting guilds, how do you decide what trees you're going to grow in a system and what, what trees and crops you're going to grow together? So yes, definitely native and regionally appropriate that drives a design. So anything that is regionally appropriate can function well in a drylands environment or be moved along so that it can be lower water usage is what really drives a guild. There's definitely plant species that I won't put into a design. Like I will turn clients away if they want a landscape that just isn't going to fit in with our philosophical approach. If it can't operate in a tiered system, like in, let's say, an alley crop system, right, where we have tree rows and we have an understory crop, maybe we have some sort of low-growing crop as well. If it can't function in that context, then it's not regionally appropriate. Water is an issue. Water is always going to be an issue here in Southern California, and it's becoming more so. Let can you get the kind of yields based on what your resources are going to, to require? Mm. Like water resources are going to be huge. Do you have the funds to do something like that, to produce that crop? Yeah. Well, I love that. Just taking into account the realistic resources that a landscape has and that people have, um, yep. and really using that as the base when you're deciding what kind of plants you're going to put into your urban agroforestry system. Really, I think it, it has to be that way. And that's, there's a lot of environmental and social issues that are related to how we utilize land, how we deal with our water resources, and how we produce food for ourselves. And if managing your landscape, whether it's residential or production, doesn't take that into account, then it's an unsustainable system. It is a regressive system and all designs need to operate from that perspective. You know, like yeah. it's gotta be sustainable. It has to capture water. It has to build soil. It has to provide habitat and that's habitat for us and habitat for all of the various pollinator species that we need, which if we're talk, if we're then thinking about it in an integrated pest management perspective are providing those natural enemies that can help reduce the amount of time that we need to be spending in our tree-based systems to manage yeah. like white fly and aphids and things of that nature. Well, it, it just goes back to what we were talking about before, like meeting multiple goals with your agroforestry design and yeah. with the trees you select, with the crops you select, with the way you orient them and, and arrange them, you really think about sustainability and meeting multiple goals at every step of your process. Yeah. And, and, you know, like we're talking about everything at a super high level, like this is yeah. all theoretical. And so, you know, 
like we're not getting kind of into the nuts and bolts of of the details of designing something like this, but recognizing that these types of systems, there's a complexity to them. So yeah, we have been talking about like a lot of these kind of more high level theories and, and principles, but let's get into the nuts and bolts of it. Let's talk about, you know, the systems and what they can actually look like on the ground. I know we've talked about a few examples of how they can look on the ground, but let's talk about Coastal Roots Farm, the system that we both were working on uh, when we met. So that farm had a huge eight acre urban agroforestry system, which is so neat. And I just want to talk about it because it was such an interesting system and it had a lot of different arrangements of trees within this one agroforestry system. And I know Ecology Artisans, you guys helped implement the system originally. And then you guys came in after time and ended up really dialing in the management of it and just sprucing up its design. Let's just like talk about what that looked like. There were three components to it. There was the silvopasture and there was a food forest and then there was an alley cropping system. And then you eventually turned it, the silvopasture into a silvopasture slash alley cropping system. So just describe what all of those different components were. Sure. So just a uh, step back real quick. Coaster Roots Farm has a Jewish cultural directive. And so a part of what the overall design was supposed to be for the site was to have a production area that mimicked ancestral Jewish tree cropping systems and animal management systems. So the production area was tree rows roughly 300 feet long by 12 to 15 feet wide. Those tree rows were spaced at 30 foot on center, giving an alley that had the capacity for, I think it finished at like 20 or 22 feet wide of vegetable production. Those vegetable production alleys were then managed so that the, the weed pest management, the soil development, was managed by a rotational system of chicken tractors and cover cropping. That then led into the production of a variety of different annual crops. So the chickens were rotated through and then after a period of time, crops were planted in in those same alleys where the chickens had been. Correct. So we started to get a, a handle on the alleys by doing some mechanical management, flail mowing, line trimming, and then to ultimately disrupt the life cycle of the invasives, we did very minor tillage with just disking. But what we wanted to do was disrupt the soil because over time it had become compacted. Yeah. Then started a process of overseeding with cover crops. And we mixed in, we did white clover, red clover, buckwheat. And wasn't and then, there some daikon radish? Yes, that's up? right. That's yeah. right. Daikon radish in there as well. Yep. Yep. Good call. So we implemented that. We let that cover crop start to grow. We did that a couple of years of letting it go to seed, just doing mechanical management. We didn't do more disking. We only did that one round of disking to get everything started. 
And then we went through and, and started to let the cover crops become naturalized. Then once we had a couple of cycles of cover cropping in there, then we brought chicken tractors in and we had two chicken tractors, roughly about 500 birds. And, and, and they would go out in the day and they, there was a fence. So they were free range, but fenced in. They, yep, we used um, poultry netting, electrified poultry netting, and we established two paddocks. And so it, it would take us four weeks to go through one alley. We would move the animals all the way through. We did one move a week of the tractors and that would give pretty substantial impacts. You know, they didn't clear all the cover crops. It left a nice amount of stubble, a lot of, of manure, and then a lot of just like the animals. I mean, anybody that's paid attention to chickens knows the kind of tillage that chickens will do. So we had really nice animal impacts. By the time we got through one alley, we would start building our paddocks. We would then move into alley number two and start moving our animals through that way. And by the time the animals got there, our cover crops were at a good height to provide lots of organic material and lots of forage for the animals. Then we would come through the alley that had just had the chicken tractor in it. I forget the exact number of days to meet the FSMA requirements, roughly like six weeks. Then we would come in and we would shape beds, plant our crops, and then that would get us, by the time we were actually able to harvest, we were well beyond that 120 or 160 days, depending on the crop. It was highly friable soil, still yeah. with some stubble cover, but exposed enough based on the disking and the animal impact to be able to just come right in. And we weren't even using a seed drill or anything. We were just coming through, you know, they used a, uh, a BCS to just kind of furrow and direct seed. Okay. Just a step back. What were the crops that you were planting? So college artisans helped with the original design, installed all of the water harvesting features, basins, earthworks, some road grading to use the roads as conveyance to shift water into the planting areas. But the tree layout that we designed had been adjusted. So for a production system, it was a little cattywampus because it, it wasn't really laid out in such a way to maximize production. But what we started to focus on was an overstory of elderberry, Sambucus nigra. And then we had four or five different species of pomegranate. We had some apple varieties, some stone fruit varieties. So the elderberry, by the time the animals got in there, the elderberries were three or four years old. And so anybody who's familiar with that species, like you give them a little bit of irrigation and they were being irrigated with Netafim drip irrigation. If I remember correctly, it was yeah. uh, like 12 inch spacing on the emitters at 0.9 gallons per hour. Good memory. So these were really healthy, well-developed elderberries. So they worked fantastic as an overstory tree, as a windbreak. They gave the animals excellent amount of coverage from the sun. Yeah, they, they served really well as an overstory tree. And it was neat to have that biodiversity habitat right there in the middle of this production system that was producing annual crops and ultimately chickens, eggs, you know? Like yeah. 
Yes. It was just such a, a great system, but irrigation was definitely a challenge. Like irrigating that pasture was tough sometimes because we had to, we had to irrigate the cover crops in California because you can't not. Correct. But then you had to move that infrastructure when you were moving the chickens through, right? Yeah. So someone had the foresight to kind of split the alley crop system ahead of time, right down the middle with a branched main line. And then they stubbed it up and teed it out. So what we ended up doing was to retrofit it is coming back, putting in banjo fittings so that we could quick disconnect. And then I would run an inch and a half schedule 80 polyline right down the middle of the alley with impact emitters spaced, I think off the top of my head, it was like every 15 feet. So we were able to get really excellent head-to-head coverage, the entire width of the alleys. And yeah, it ended up working out really well. And that's actually a a system that I replicate even now on smaller ones because I I found it to be so user-friendly. Well, it's, it's really important to think about things like that in, in California, especially where you have to irrigate everything because yeah, when you're working with an agroforestry system, you have to irrigate two different crops and they're going to have different water requirements. They're going to have different irrigation schedules. Like you said, like the trees were getting drip and the cover crop needed overhead. And so you have to really create your system intentionally for this to work. You really have to think about it. Intentionality is so important with all of this. One of the things that I think is really important for anybody who's designing their own system. There's differences in a home system and a production system that have to be taken into account. That is expressly intentional. You know, you have to really think about what your goals are and then how to achieve that goals with what your resources, what you have available to you, labor hours, equipment, finances, all of those things are really important. Yeah. Intentionality. You hit on a good point, labor too, right? Because that is a huge issue with a lot of urban agroforestry systems that are set up like in the form of food forests. Labor is a huge issue. Like those are not efficient systems. I think that's something to, to, to note, right? Like if you're going to have a food forest, it's going to be more work to maintain it and, and harvest from it, right? Yes. I think that's one of the things that's a little left out of permaculture education. You have to think about what your management is going to look like. Diversity is key, but being realistic in your diversity, because if you try to pack too much into a small area, one of the big things that I've seen in home systems is issues with pests, white flies or leaf hoppers, which are major vectors here in Southern California, aphids. If you don't have enough space between your trees to have adequate ventilation, adequate infiltration of sunlight into your canopy, Mm -hmm. you're going to create all of these long-term management issues. You're going to need to be dealing with plant pests. Weeds are going to happen. You know, no system is going to be free of weeds. You have to expect that. And if you plant in a manner that makes your management more difficult to address these, it's so much easier for weedy pests to get out of control and to make it so that your time isn't going to be able to meet 
the management requirements that you have to keep your system healthy. Yeah. So how do you find that sweet spot of diversity? How do you design a system that's diverse enough to produce, a, you know, a wide variety of different kinds of crops in an urban setting, if that's what you're going for, while also being manageable? What's your advice for that? So one of the first things that I'll really discuss with a client is for them to give a realistic estimate of how much time they want to be spending in their landscape, because it, it's going to require it. You know, you can go on YouTube and watch someone who's building a permaculture food forest tell you that, you know, you put this infrastructure into place and then you walk away and it just becomes this, this yeah. verdant biological Eden. That's just not yeah, the case. No. <laughs> like, and, and anybody who's telling you that is maybe real new to it and really excited about the concept of a food forest, but that's just not realistic. No system is free of maintenance. It doesn't matter whether that's an economic system, a biological system, or your car, right? Yeah. Like, they all require some sort of maintenance and management to keep it functioning. And so time management and what you have for human capital, what do you, what yeah. you have available for that is critical to determine what your ultimate design is going to look like. Because if you, if you fail to adequately assess that, you're going to find yourself unable to manage the system. It's going to get away from you. You'll have pests, you'll have weed pests and a lot of frustration. And, and at that point in time, like I can't tell you how many small backyard orchards where people put in all of these trees and they're too close together and they get a lot of fruit drop and they're having issues yeah. with rodents or they're having issues with uh, any number of biological pests and sooty molds because things are too close together. So starting out with what do you have available for time? And then how much do you understand about what your system is actually going to require for management? So really educating about what it takes to maintain a system. And, and then mechanize where you can, right? Mechanize where oh, you yes. can, yes. Plant, yeah. plant linearly when you can, and then, you know, have enough diversity, but not, but not too much. Yeah. And, yeah. and one of the things, the great things too about trees is in a small scale system, you don't need to plant 20 trees. You can take five trees of various species, whether those are palm fruits, stone fruits, or citrus. And then once they reach maturity, you can start to graft. And then you have multi-grafted trees and you can True. create a tree that has, you know, you like pluots, you like peaches, you like almonds, and you like cherries. Well, you can have that all on one tree as it reaches maturity through grafting. So thinking and an understanding how to, to utilize a small space and utilize all of the tools that you have available to you. I mean, that's permaculture and, and regenerative agriculture, resource management. Yeah. And so just to recap, when you go about designing an urban agroforestry system, you think about the, the human goals behind why a, a client or a person wants to plant this system. And you think about the landscape and you think about the actual plants themselves and how they all fit together, making sure that they're place appropriate and making sure that they work well together. And then the water component you mentioned, 
Can you elaborate on that? Like, what exactly do you mean by designing in a way that harvests water? Yeah, yeah, sure. So there's some concepts from permaculture design that we implement a lot. And one of those is swales and basins. So when we talk about swales, we're not necessarily talking about water conveyance. We're talking about water capture. So an example of a swale is contour planting. So we can mark out the contour of a landscape and then create these undulations in the landscapes, basically a basin and a berm. And you level the bottom of the basin and then you want to do your calculations for water volume as runoff and then creating your basin and berm heights to be able to capture large influxes of water, right? You don't want to overscale them, but you want to be thinking about possible flooding systems. Like we just had a, a two inches come down in Southern California, and that's yeah. a lot for one event in an area like this. So an on-contour planting with a basin and a berm to interrupt the sheet flow of water, spread it out over a broader area. And because it captures the water, it gives it again, more opportunity to percolate and then infiltrate, having those two different actions of how water moves through soil. So that's one, one way. And then another aspect that works in unison with that is establishing perennial ground covers. On the type of system, it's going to vary, you know, like in a residential system, sometimes we'll use mulches, but a lot of times I try to encourage people to think about green mulching systems, grasses, your forbs, and your nitrogen fixing forbs, and utilizing ground cover to add soil organic matter, protect surface soil from wind, sun. So those are two ways that we design for water harvesting capacity. And then a third aspect of that, and this fits really well with agroforestry practices, is establishing overstory species you can plant within the berm or within the basin. You plant some trees on what I would refer to as the downhill side of the berm. Those trees are going to catch that water as it comes through the soil, sending roots through the berm into the basin, stabilizing that berm. You could plant some trees on the upper portion of that berm, their roots will then reach down through that berm, going into the front of the berm, going down into the basin. And then, yeah, all of those work as the biological infrastructure for the long-term viability of, of those earthworks, we call them. Those three aspects sort of serve as the foundation for water harvesting practices. And, and then that also helps so that you don't have to irrigate the trees as often, right? Because they're getting that access to that pool of water, right? Yes, that is the idea that the, this all serves as passive irrigation. But one of the things that I always encourage people to think about is that that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have to irrigate. If you are growing anything and specifically for food production, there's a certain amount of water that you're going to need. You're yeah. not going to eradicate the need for water, but what you are doing is creating the biological infrastructure and structuring your landscape 
to maximize whatever water is available to you. And that can be rainfall, that can be ambient precipitation if you're close to the coast with your marine layer, that can be morning dew, all of those things. So utilizing the ground cover, the berms and basins, using mulches, whether that's green or bark mulches, all of those things working together to just maximize capture and thinking about all of those different elements as surface area. Even a mulch, each individual component of the aggregate, whether it's real large or real fine, all of it serves in some sort of function to increase the available surface area for capture, slowing, so forth. And also just, it increases the organic matter, right? Like utilizing these, these things like green manures, cover crops, trees, that increases the organic matter, which increases the water holding capacity. So I love that term that you said, the biological infrastructure. Yes. And, you know, in addition to the water capture, that soil organic matter is really important in also creating that interstitial space where you're getting the water in, but you're also increasing the volume of oxygen that gets into the soil, right? Because that's actually mm-hmm. an important component of healthy soil is oxygen and water. And as you have those things, that then increases the ability to regenerate or increase the biological life that exists and is, is what really defines a healthy soil. So the more oxygen, the more water, you increase root infiltration, the more roots that you have and the more diversity of roots that you have in the soil means you have more root exudates. So all of those things like the sugars that the soil biology really requires. So your aerobic bacterias, your healthy nematodes, things of that nature, all of those things that you need to be present in the soil to break the soil down. That's your microscopic animal impact is Mm -hmm. all of that soil biology going through, decomposing the minerals and making them as they excrete them, manuring into the soil, making it bioavailable to your tree species, to your shrubs, to your, your annual crops, if that's what you're doing. Like that whole complex system that maintaining water on your site really is drives. Incorporating trees and cover crops and everything that you just talked about, it creates these positive feedback loops. Like when you have more air and water in the soil, then you have more life. And when you have more life, you have more breakdown of organic matter and it just keeps on cycling. And, and then the process just continues. And then that's how you build a regenerative system. Yes. There's a lot of great data out there right now about how soil organic matter, how important that is to drive healthy, productive landscapes, whether that's a residential or a production agriculture system. Soil organic matter, the exponential increases in water storage capacity and biological diversity. Soil science is a really exciting avenue to delve into. Going back to urban systems, like you were saying before, so many urban systems have really unhealthy soils because they've been impacted by trace metals or a lot of pollution, or they've just been really compacted. So, you know, going about getting a healthy soil can seem super daunting in urban areas sometimes. So what are your first steps for for starting this process? 
Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that I like to encourage clients to do is to start with getting a soil test done and just see what's available. What do you currently have? And what's your soil composition? Because you're never going to get trees or plants to outperform the soil that they're in. Then I like to really kind of talk my clients through how soil biology will improve your trees and your plants and your landscape's performance. I really will try to educate them on the benefits of cover cropping. And there's a variety of ways to do that, you know, like using things like your clovers and your buckwheats and your milky oats, things like that. But there's other ways that you can create that kind of successional patterning for a residential landscape. Like as an example, there's a variety of different California native species that I use that are nitrogen fixers that can be cut back real hard and you can just continue to mechanically add organic material onto the soil. That's kind of like the the basics that I will take them through. And, you know, in an urban environment, not even necessarily like having contaminants in the soil, just because of what we have to do to our soils to make them buildable, right? You got to take the top soil out. You're oftentimes then stripping it down to your B soil horizon or even, even lower than that, right? And then compacting that and bringing in fill so that it you can actually engineer a structure that's going to be stable in an environment like Southern California that's prone yeah. to earthquakes, right? So all of those aspects remove everything that creates healthy soil. It's compacted dirt and, you know, just starting to do all of those, just the basics of basic cover cropping, adding or- soil organic matter, like all of those processes, like that's fundamental yeah. to any, any urban design. And I I love just, you know, that principle of just going slow, building that soil first, because that's, that's the base of everything. Then allowing the system to evolve. You know, you taught me this, that succession is a part of any agroforestry system. And I guess this, this building of the soil is part of that succession. You start with the soil and then pioneer plants, and then you eventually get to your crop plants and then they grow and shade out other crops. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's an ecological system, you know, like As an example, here in Southern California, we have fires. Fire comes through. There's always certain plants that arise in a burned area. It's almost like clockwork. We know that these native plants are going to be coming in, something like a fireweed or a deerweed. And those are the pioneers. They're starting to do the work of reintroducing and drying nutrients to the surface or pulling it out of the atmosphere and putting into the soil to start that whole process of succession. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's one of the real successes of permaculture and regenerative agriculture is recognizing that there's already a protocol for developing a healthy land management system. And it is through mimicking that. And then with the addition of scientific inquiry, we have a framework to be able to create healthy landscapes. And there has to be creativity in how we do this because every single site has its own requirements, its own needs, as does the client themselves. And being able to synthesize all of that and then articulate an idea and a vision and implement that requires the flexibility and the artistry 
to take all of those different elements and bring that to life. It is so complex. I mean, there really is so much to think about when designing an agroforestry system, but you've given us so many starting points, the philosophies to build upon and the general principles to keep in mind. And then the steps about how you go about doing it. This has really been a great roadmap for, for how we can start to, to think about designing urban agroforestry systems. Before, before we end things, something that I would really encourage people to think about, you know, like obviously, you know, I listen to NCAT's podcast. So I imagine that there's probably a lot of people who work in the field, but for folks who don't, who listen to this and are thinking about designing their landscape, don't be dissuaded from doing your own design and thinking deeply about your design, but I definitely encourage people to utilize the expertise of folks who have been doing this, even if it's just in a consultation basis or assisting in the design, an investment of working with someone in consulting. It's helpful and you'll save yourself a lot of mistakes and retrofitting. Take the time and really invest in your future. This is really legacy work. That's very well said. And there are so many resources on this for people to get started. The USDA National Agroforestry Center is an amazing resource. And then NCAT too. We have a lot of agroforestry specialists and we have our hotline that farmers can call. So this is a good point, Chris, that, you know, folks should definitely reach out, educate themselves first and, and work on this slowly. Slowly. Yeah, absolutely. Like that's one of the guiding principles of permaculture is careful and thoughtful design regardless of your region. There are people that are working all over the country that have a lot of experience, really knowledgeable, excellent designers, and those resources are there. Well, thank you for doing the work that you do. It is such important work. And thank you for taking the time to share your expertise with us. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure, Catherine. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Additional information about this episode and related resources can be found at atra.incat.org. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Voices from the Field wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Rich Myers. ATRA, Voices from the Field, is produced by the National Center for Appropriate Technology, headquartered in Butte, Montana. It's supported by the USDA Rural Business Cooperative Service as part of NCAT's ATRA Sustainable Agriculture Program. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this recording are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the USDA or NCAT. We'll catch you again next week, and until then, keep on farming.